Matt, if you're new or visiting, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, peace be with you at home, if you're listening online as well. Um, we miss you and we love you. And uh, let's, can we, you know what we should do? Because you haven't done this, I don't think, really at all. We should, let's clap for people that are stuck at home. I, I, maybe, maybe that'll come through on here. I don't know. That was my hope. I, I miss the, some of those folks, and, and we, I just want to extend to them that we miss them, and we love them, and long to see them again uh, when they can. Um, so yeah, uh, children dedications. My heart is humbled. My heart is full. I love children dedications. Honestly, on, on the Sundays we do child dedications, is a Sunday that I'm like, do I, do I need to preach? Um, I feel like flexing what needs to be said about kids and our role and responsibility to kids, all, the, the, all that needs to be or should be said in that time to me is enough for a Sunday. Um, I love it. I really do love child dedication. Um, it, we, what we're doing, we're practicing in child dedications what the name suggests, which is we are dedicating, dedicating formally dedicating, devoting, committing ourselves uh, to a new set of children uh, that the Lord has portioned to us as a local church, um, and we're treating children, in my opinion, in my strong opinion, the opinion of many here, we're treating children as we should, as gifts. They're little gifts. Uh, they're gifts that deserve God's love. Uh, they deserve our intentionality and our commitment to raise them in particular ways, the particular ways in which we raise our kids. In, in the book of Mark, um, chapter 10, verse 13 through 16, we see this beautiful and challenging scene involving Jesus and children. It says this, and they were bringing children to him, that, that's Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them, the, the parents, that is. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. So, so in that scene right there, and, and that's in other gospel accounts as well, uh, but it just like us, we see parents centuries ago loving their kids, wanting healing for their kids. Maybe they were sick, or at least at the very least, they just, they just wanted blessing for their kids, right? Like, they, at this point, this Jesus guy, he's this revolutionary figure, he's this miracle worker, he's this great teacher. They're probably still trying to figure out what he's like, um, and so they're bringing their kids, you know? They're just throwing and heaping everything, every hope they can on this guy Jesus to bless their kids. But kids also, centuries ago, just like us here today, uh, every Sunday, every day in your home as a parent, if you, especially if you've got little ones, kids, were, kids are considered distracting and at times hard to manage. Can I get an amen from parents? <laughs> That's a hearty amen. Uh, tone it down, parents. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it, which is why I think, like, we don't, we don't humanize the, the figures, the characters in the Bible enough, right? Like, it's why the, 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 these guys, the disciples, are doing what they're doing, right? It's like, they're, they're having a little, their little mini, you know, service with Jesus, and these kids are being brought to, and they're like, no, 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 you need to go back to the children's ministry or something. I don't know what they're doing, but they're saying something, right? They're like, no, this, you're not important right now. They're criticizing the parents 
for disrupting what they saw as a more, more important ministry work that Jesus and they were doing. And Jesus totally flips the script on them, doesn't he? He, 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 he criticizes his disciples, not the parents and children, for their wrong valuations. And that's what Jesus, quite frankly, he just does all the time to us. If you get close to Jesus, he will flip, he'll flip the script on you and how you wrongly valuated things in your life. And, and that's what he does on them. And, he, and he, 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 he tells them they're wrong in this and somehow, some way. Um, and then he scoops these kids up and he speaks these encouraging prayers over them. Um, and I just want you to see that there's no such thing as wasted time with children in God's economy. Maybe in the world's economy, but not in God's economy. Is there ever such a thing as wasted time with a, ch- with a child? And so we have much to learn in our Christianity by looking at, listening to, and contemplating children. So much to look at and listen and learn. They keep us humble. They keep us imaginative, which is plaguing the Western church, a sense of imagination and a sense of creativity. And children bring this back to us. And what I want to highlight today in our, these dedications is children, when we look at them and we think about them, they remind us of how broken the world is, don't they? I mean, it's broken for you and me too, but for kids, they remind you that it's broken because uh, kids are this constant reminder that the ways of the world, there's a way in which the world talks, behaves, lives. There's a way in which the world operates and it wants to get inside these little impressionable minds and hearts in all sorts of destructive ways. And if you're a parent or you're a grandparent or you're an aunt or you're an uncle and you're close to your, this kid that you, you, know, you have in your family and you want good things for them, what do you tend to do naturally? You, you tend to want to insulate them because you're like, please don't look at that. Cover your eyes. Turn the volume down. Don't, don't talk like that in front of them because what are you doing? You see, the thing is, as an adult, you know something, don't you? You know through what you've suffered, what you've participated in, what you've witnessed that the world is broken. And it's done things to you. And now as an adult, what are you doing? Either purposely or maybe subconsciously in some ways, what you're trying to do is detangle yourself, right, from all the broken ways that the world has got inside you. And that's what we're doing as Christians. We're just trying to spend our time trying to figure out, how do I... How do I reverse engineer, unlearn all the destructive, evil stuff that the world has done to me. You know, some of it's suffering that wasn't my fault, and some of it is my fault. I willingly ran right into it. All the selfish, dehumanizing, prideful ways uh, that we as adults have experienced. And it's this brokenness that we know we can't totally eliminate, we can't totally insulate from our kids, but we can with God's grace, thoughtful commitments, and good community, we can prepare our kids to navigate a broken world with faith, with love, with hope. And that's what baby dedications or child dedications, that's what they're about. It's, it's parents and, the, and, the, and a community of faith like the Oaks joining together saying, all right, all right, so we've got these precious little gifts that are crawling around, they're screaming, they're crying, they're running around here after the service, like they're, do, they're wreaking havoc in our homes. All of this wonderful stuff, we've got these things, these, these, these little people, and we're responsible for them. 
And gosh, I want to give them hope because this place is broken. And I want to think about what I can do and what you can do and what we can do as a community. You know, the wisdom literature in the Bible reminds us, this is Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the ways that he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's like no matter what they want to do, it'll chase them down. That's how I think of it. The beauty of Jesus will chase after them. And so what are the ways that we are training our children in? That's the question that compels us to think and do some serious evaluation and have some courage to make commitments and promises. And so we want to commit ourselves to teaching our children the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of Jesus. And we want to commit ourselves to living our own lives. And hear me now, please hear me. We want to commit our own lives to living a particular way in front of them. We should be reminded today, and let me please remind you, especially in the realm of children, more is caught than taught. And so there's a whole lot of people teaching their kids certain things, telling them certain things. And then these kids are growing up and they're not displaying these things and people are saying, why is this happening? I told you something different. They learned it by watching you. More is caught than taught. So the most decisive way, the most beautiful, the most impressionable way that we disciple and we train and raise up our kids in the faith is to live, to live ourselves a particular way in front of them. Oh, that they, they see grace in us. Oh, that they see mercy in us. Oh, that they would see something like hope in us for something better. So today, um, we want to commit ourselves to gospel teaching and gospel living in front of kids. Because our presence means everything to them. Uh, So, um, parents... When I read your names and your child's name, uh, come on up here, and uh, we'll make these commitments this morning, um, both them and as a church. Uh, so let me get my list out here, and you feel free, please, I encourage you to you know, clap for these beautiful people, because they're all going to be up here, and they're going to melt us with their baby cuteness. So uh, here, here's the first group that we've got. Uh, Rob and Amy Chambers are dedicating their daughter, Hannah Claire Chambers. Nathan and Lindsay Lindsay dedicating their son, Sawyer Benjamin Lindsay. Garrison and Bethany Lister dedicating their son, Rowan Charles Lister. Kevin and Kat Mackey dedicating their son, Liam Andrew Mackey. Zach and Aaron Magnus dedicating their daughter, Leah Ruth Magnus. Grayson and Carly Schick dedicating their daughter, Emerson Sue Schick. David and Ashley Turpin dedicating their daughter, Darby Christine Turpin. (laughs) 
All right, so parents, if you could, uh, you can turn and face me um, and listen carefully, and I'll, and I'll give you the words to, to repeat after I'm done. Uh, so, so parents, will you commit to trust God's promises made to you and your children in his word? Uh, will you commit to seek God and seek gospel change in the way you live and parent your children? Will you commit to discipline your children and show them grace? Will you commit to teach God's word to them and live out the gospel in your home? Will you commit to pray for them and teach them to pray? And will you commit to partner with this church community, seek their help and accountability, and lead your children to do the same? If so, say, with God's help, we will. Fantastic. Okay, parents, God, God loves you. I love you. There are many people out here, obviously, that, that love you. Uh, clearly, people you know, love our parents and these kids because our, our church building fills up on Sundays on child dedications. When it's not child dedications, it's, it tends to be a little bit empty. <laughs> so uh, you, why don't you all turn around, face back to the, to the congregation. Um, I want you guys to know that because you've made this place your home, your church home, there are many of us who are in this journey with you, um, so this isn't just a time for you, parents. Man, we're in it with you. Like we, we, that's what we try to do. We try to figure this stuff out as a family, uh, uh, as a church family. And so uh, if you're a member, a covenant member of this church, or if you're just a family member that, that have come to support them, that's fine too. You can stand, um, stand in support of these people um, and these children and... Um, yeah, we just want to express that you guys are not alone, and we got to try to figure this out together as a church. And so let us take our opportunity, church, to commit to these parents and to these kids. And so listen to this very carefully. Church, will you commit to seek God and seek gospel change in the way you live before these children? Will you commit to pray for these children, that they will grow to love Jesus and trust in him? Will you commit to teach them the gospel through your words and your example? Oh, boy. Feel it. Let it just sit with you. Will you commit to partner with these parents, holding them accountable and confronting their sin? Preferably don't do that until you've built relational capital with them, just as a side note. Will you commit to pray for them and encourage them as they face the trials of parenting? And if so, please read the following out loud together. Ready? With joy and thanksgiving, as Christ's church, with God's help, we promise to love, encourage, and support you as you follow Christ and train your children in the faith. Amen. Let's pray together, everybody. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we thank you for the gift of these children this morning. My goodness, Lord, we need help. We need help. These kids, they, they, they wake us up as parents, literally, uh, come in our rooms, and they also just worry us, you know, and we need help, and we need wisdom, and we need courage. Please give it. But God, never let us, never let us forget the neglect, the gift that you've given, and that we have just a, a, a responsibility, a daunting responsibility. But oh, it's beautiful, God. So thank you, thank you, and uh, Father, may we grow in our ability to live in front of them as we should. We love you, and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen.
All right, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. All right, so uh, if you've got your Bibles and you want to turn to Hebrews chapter 12, go there now. It'll also be on the screen if you're not uh, a hard copy Bible person or turn your Bible on. If you'd like to do that, follow on your phone or your tablet, whatever you use. You can stay seated. I'm going to read a bit of text here. Um, we're going to be in Hebrews 12, looking at 1 through 17. So it's a bit of text. Normally we would stand out of respect for God's Word, but you can just hang out, stay seated. Um, like I said, I'm going to do a bit of reading here. Um, as you're turning there, prepping your mind and your heart for this, big thanks to just your sacrifices, church, and the people that give, the people that serve, the people that pray. Thank you. Keep it up. It's making a world of difference. And we just, we just want to, I just want to make sure I always say that, um, that we love you and we so much appreciate the work that you're putting in around here. So, um, yeah, let's hear from God's word this morning. Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these were the witnesses that uh, we talked about last week, all those that have had faith in the past, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and run, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And then he quotes from uh, Proverbs 3 here. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." It's for discipline that you have to endure. God's treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but be healed. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no, no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. 
for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is the word of the Lord. So just a quick reminder to you guys, the book of Hebrews was written to a tired, uh, frustrated, beleaguered group of Christians. Where? We don't know exactly. They were, most likely they were Jewish Christians, um, but they were tired, probably because of some kind of persecution. The, the specifics of that we just don't know. We have to speculate. Um, so it's a book that teaches us a lot about Jesus, a whole lot about Jesus. It's like every chapter, every paragraph, it's another pointer to Jesus. Um, and talking essentially about how beautiful he is, like how fascinating he is too. You know? and, and that he is, Jesus is, he's better than any strategy or religion that you could possibly subscribe to. And, oh, boy, man, everybody's subscribing to a religion. You are. I mean, it doesn't mean you, you know, the church buildings might be empty, but people are definitely religious. They're religious in the gym. They're religious on Twitter. They're religious on TikTok. They're religious in school. They're religious at work. There's, everybody's doing something to manage their own guilt. That's religion. And so uh, Hebrews is saying Jesus is the better the better one. If you understand him, he's better. And so it's a book that uh, uh, it does get in your face a bit. If you've noticed that, like it, the book of Hebrews is not scared to kind of ruffle your feathers. It's, it gets in your business. Uh, so that's a struggle for us as Western, a bit fragile people. We don't know what, quite what to do to it. And, and so it calls us out. It wakes us up out of idleness or, or, or crazy thoughts that of thinking somehow maybe life would be better in, with not doing this whole faith thing that we're doing. And so um, you've got to love the audacity and the, auda- and the, and the honesty, I think, of, of a book like Hebrews. Um, and because the author of Hebrews clearly knows the demons that you're facing. And you're like, no, not really. He hasn't mentioned one specifically. But the, it's underneath it. Like, the demons underneath it. Like, the emotions that you're struggling with. He knows it. He, he, he doesn't necessarily mention them by name specifically, but he addresses the turmoil, the spiritual turmoil, the, the emotional turmoil that comes from living in the broken world. Notice he uses a metaphor to describe what life as a Christian feels like. It's like a race. That's what he's saying. If you're a Christian, life is just like a race. And it's not like a race in the sense that you're competing against people, but in the sense that life is tiring. It involves suffering, conflict, struggles, and setback. Life is like a race. And this race has a finish line, right? That's the kind of, I'm summarizing what we're dealing with in this passage. The finish line being Jesus himself. Uh, the finish line being Jesus to be with him and to be like him. And what the author essentially says to us here is you'll perpetually be shocked. Look, you're going to be shocked in life all the time, and, and, and you're, you're, you're going to be fed up at times, and you're going to be bitter. You're really going to have to fight bitterness in life and the struggles that you face, the conflicts that you face, the setbacks that you face, unless you understand something really, really important and unique. Did you catch what he said, what it was? Sonship, daughtership. You got to realize that, otherwise you're just not going to grow through the struggles and the difficulties that you face in life. If you don't get sonship, daughtership, you don't get the Bible, you don't get the gospel, and you don't get what Jesus is trying to do. It's what we call adoption in the church. It's what Paul calls adoption in Ephesians. Jesus hasn't rescued us from evil 
from guilt, from shame, from death, to bring you back to a boss. That's not what he's done. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has rescued us, saved us from our guilt, our shame, our fear, to bring us back to a father. That is a critical distinction you have to make. That is very, very fundamentally Christian. In many ways, that's what sets it apart from all other religions. There's this unique dynamic to it that's critical to the Christian faith. To be a Christian isn't to run through life's difficulties to impress some cosmic, capricious, oh, tyrannical boss or coach, some kind of metaphorical man upstairs, as people colloquially say. I mean, that's not what we're doing. That's not what the Bible is teaching. We're running not to placate a boss. We're running to please a father, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5. And if we truly are sons and daughters of a loving father, then the struggles uh, we're facing in life are part of your what? What did he say? He said discipline. Discipline. The str- he, he, he wants you to put a lens on life and the conflict that you face the struggle that you face, and he wants you to look at that, and he wants you to see it, and this takes imagination, as discipline. Not as just arbitrary suffering, but discipline. Now, typically, uh, uh, that word discipline, for us, it carries like a particular kind of negative connotation, doesn't it? Like we think punitive. Um, And really, the the word being used here um, by the author of Hebrews in the Greek is uh, padia, which uh, technically means rearing of a child or training. It's actually where we get the word pediatrics. That's the root word. And so what does a good pediatrician do? Like, what are they interested in? Last time I checked, they're interested in the flourishing and development, healthy flourishing and development of a child. That's what they're interested in. And so this passage is saying... That um, uh, when life is difficult, when you face conflict, suffering, discouragement, and you will, and you do, right? There is a, a, an incredible amount of comfort and an incredible amount of opportunity to grow and develop as a person. If you see the pain, the pain that you're going through, as God, the Father, methodically, lovingly shaping your character and bringing you wisdom, He's raising you like a child. This is like, we, like I talk about as Christians, your, your life as a Christian is to, trying to figure out what it means to like give up childishness and take up childlike maturity. There's, a, there's this, a nuance there that's really important. We want to be childlike in our humility and our understanding. That, man, there's so much, man, there's so much I got to learn. You know, there's so much that you have to learn. I don't care what your age is. And so, um, the key, of course, though, is this. Do you or will you humble yourself to this kind of perspective? You know what I mean? Like, a lot of people talk about God as father. A lot of people talk about, like, I'm a child of God. They'll sing it. But, but, but like, this, in, the, in the heart of Hebrews, like, let's be honest with ourselves. It, it, that doesn't mean a thing. Unless, as the text says, we subject ourselves to the process of it. There's a whole surrendering that needs to take place. Um, in verse 9, he says, Besides this, we have had earthly fathers 
who disciplined us and we respected them, maybe, and shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Right? So it's a lesser to a greater argument. And now that statement, like, let's, to be fair, like that statement assumes a whole lot about our earthly fathers that may or may not be true. Like, in our day and age, you may not have had an earthly father at all uh, in terms of in being involved with you or, or, or one that you certainly feel like you could have respected. I don't know. But you get the idea to which he is getting across. The ideal scenario is that we have had or uh, we would have had, you know, earthly fathers that loved us, disciplined us, and although we didn't enjoy it, Lord knows I didn't, although we didn't enjoy it, we respected them and always trusted that they loved us, and so we followed and we surrendered to the process. And therefore, we must certainly trust God and learn to surrender to him in our pain because, because the idea here is, of course, that he is so much better, so much better than our earthly fathers. So uh, here's the question, right? So here's the question. What's it look like then? I mean, I can say it, and we don't want to leave it in the abstract. Like, like what's it mean to subject to God as father in the process of discipline? How do you know you're, you're living out sonship, daughtership? How do you know? Like, what's... What are you actually doing in your life? How do you truly live out this, this work of submitting to God and his discipline? Um, okay, so first, here's the first thing. Uh, there is a looking out you got to do or a looking up aspect to this. Specifically, we want to be learning, listening, and studying the Father. Learning, listening, studying the Father, not just believing in Him. The Bible doesn't expect us to laugh through our struggles. Like, that's not the call of courage within the Christian faith. I don't know where people get that idea, like to become just serial optimists. Like, that when pain, like, anytime I come across, I came across somebody this week, just in a ton of pain, and, they, and I can just tell they don't want to hold it. So they bypass it. God's going to work it out. God's going to work it out. I'm like, are you, like, yeah, in like maybe 10 years. I don't know. And you're, and you're probably like, I'm never going to go see him for counseling. <laughs> I didn't say that to them. I was thinking it in my head. What I was thinking was, I don't know if this person is understanding that there's a particular way in which we, we, we still hold pain. Like, we, we, we don't laugh through pain. Um, I mean, he says in verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful. Like, the Bible's honest about that. You know, like, when, I, when, I, when disciplining my, my children regularly, <laughs> a lot, uh, I don't expect them to be like, that's nah, no big deal. Matter of fact, when you, you know, as a parent, when your kid does that, you're like, this is not working. You know? You're supposed to, this is supposed to be painful, but it's also not like we mindlessly grit our teeth and just endure it either. Actually, if you look closely um, at, at the continual flow of Hebrews, uh, the advice is always to deeply familiarize yourself with Jesus when you're in your pain. Like integrate your pain into Jesus. Compare your pain to Jesus. Go ahead. That's actually a good practice to do. Jesus, have you ever been through this? Have you felt this way? Look for it. I dare you in the text. 
Try to find it and, and get past just the circumstances. Look at the emotion of what you're going through, which is a whole process in and of itself. There's what you're going through, and then there's how you feel about it. Now you take that feeling of loss, that feeling of anger, that feeling of confusion, and you take that to Jesus. And I dare you, tell me that you can't find it in the text. The question is, are you looking? You understand what I'm saying? Uh, verse 2 of chapter 12 says, look to Jesus. And then in, in 3, it says, this, consider Jesus. Consider him. The word literally there means to calculate or contemplate. What I'm trying to say is that the discipline, discipline is nothing but pain. <laughs> it's just going to be like the struggles and conflicts you're facing is just nothing but pain and sometimes just going to be just totally unbearable unless you learn that it has a direction and a type of character that it's leading to. And you must learn what that image is, like what it looks like. Get familiar with it. There's a point to it. He says, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. We may share in his life and what he's like. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his classic novel, The uh, Screwtape Letters, it's this fascinating fictional conversation between two demons. It's meant to kind of give you this, in an indirect way, give you this look at like what God is up to in the life of Christians. And a senior, a senior demon is writing to a junior demon about God, and this is what he says. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he's absorbed them, but because their, their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. You see, you see what he's getting at here. As a, parent, as a parent, right, like, like, like let's assume the best of all of us as parents, if we're a parent, you, you inherently get this. There is nothing enjoyable or art. I mean, how many of you parents are disciplining your kids and in the middle of it at some point you go, you think I enjoy this? <laughs> right? We've all said it, right? I say it daily. Like, you think this is fun for me? There was nothing enjoyable or arbitrary about disciplining your children. Every time I discipline my daughters, even in painful moments, I'm always asking them about me at some point. It's one of the things I've noticed. At some point, who do you think I am? What do you think I'm after? Do you think this is fun for me? You know, like, what, what do you think my goal is for you? What do you think I want for you, little one? There's a reason behind this. Gosh, I want you to be something that doesn't need me anymore. And this requires a certain kind of pain for you to get it. What we're trying to do when we discipline our kids is we're trying to infuse our best parts into them and leave out the worst. That's what we're doing. 
our best knowledge, our best wisdom into the, their hearts and, and their minds. Like, we, we don't want our kids to mindlessly just sit and time out. Like, you know, I put my kids in time out sometimes, and I'm not like, yeah, just think about whatever you want. No, I'm like, when I'm at my best, I'm like, no, think through it. And, like, I, I don't care if you sit here for one minute or five minutes. or t- I Ultimately, I just want you to come to me and be able to, like, articulate what you think is going on here. You know, like come to an understanding of what is happening here beyond just like, I know I'm in trouble. Well, yes, you don't run through the motions, think, contemplate, reason, calculate what is happening in your life. And hopefully, ideally, you embody something different in front of them while you're disciplining them. This, of course, is the imperfect example what I'm getting out of, what's happening in your sonship or your daughtership to God. There is a perfect example being laid out, someone who is embodied, who you are to become and who you can become by the Spirit's help. Are you familiar with him? Like, I know you believe in him. That's not what I'm asking you. Are you familiar with him? Are you, do you, are you aware of his character traits? I love I know when I I know when I come across a Bible person because they, they just they, they run every situation through life through like, yeah, it's kinda like how Jesus, when he was interacting with so and so and then he touched them, he said that like they're just everything is through the Jesus grid. Like they're just so immersed in marinating in Jesus. This is the call, the first aspect of this sonship, daughtership. It's not just trusting Jesus, but there's an aspect that true trusting faith in Jesus is a learning faith. We're yoked to him. You know, when Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That's the part we love. And we so often cut the rest of it off. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That's the invitation. Learn, Jesus. There is a way in which Jesus lives, not just the fact that he is the truth and the life. He has a particular way. We want to pick it up. And so, Romans 8, 29, Paul says the goal of the Christian life, to be conformed into the image of the Son. That is the goal if you're a Christian. So simply put, who and what is Jesus like? You believe him? Great, great. Do you know him? Do you study him? Do you spend time with him in prayer and in word? Which leads me to the second thing. Not just a looking up, but a looking in, right? A looking inward. In terms of living out this sonship, this daughtership. Verse 5, he says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. That's from Proverbs 3. This word reprove means to expose someone to their wrongdoing. You've exposed the wrong in them. And the author is saying, don't dismiss the fact that the Father wants to expose the broken parts of you. Don't dismiss that. That's what he wants to do. That's part of his loving discipline. It's not just a sign of his love. It's a signal for you. It's a signal of something that you need to work on. Right? So uh, remember that you're being trained. You're meant to be stronger. But the process of that means exposure to what? Weakness. Like, it's not too far off from the process of exercising or going, you know, to the gym and working out, which I don't do a lot of. Um, 
But, but I do occasionally, you know, take these little breaks during my day um, each week. And I take these little breaks to go for a jog or, 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 or um, you know, hit the row machine or something just to get my heart and blood pumping. And I, at this point in my life, I notice immediately where I am weak, you know. I feel it. There is a pain point at which I hit. And that's when you know, right? What do you know? You know, oh, I'm working out. What are you doing? When you experience weakness, when you just work out, push-ups, whatever, you, whatever your thing is, elliptical, treadmill, what do you notice when you feel the pain? Why in the world would you push through it? Because you know when you're feeling the pain, you're getting stronger. That's the paradox of it. That's the paradox of it. It is so in our, exactly in our discipleship. And discipline. Subjecting yourself to the Father means being open to weakness. What a betrayal of our discipleship if we talk about being sons and daughters of the King and we're never opening ourselves to how we are particularly weak. We're so good at talking about everybody's weaknesses. Gosh, I'm really good at that. I mean, I got like radar on your weaknesses. You know what I mean? He's always doing this. She's always acting that way. It's amazing how our radar goes down on the particular ways in which I'm weak. But if I'm subjecting myself, surrendering myself as son or daughter to the Father, the closer I get to Him, I just need to be exposed. And am I open to that? Am I open to that process? This is always one of the sure signs that humility and maturity is happening in someone's life. And I always seem to notice it in people, and it's so encouraging. You know, particularly when they're in a conflict or a struggle, you'll notice that they're extremely open and honest, aware. Um, they're, they're always really curious as to what's being brought out or exposed in them. You know, so they're going through a conflict with someone else, and they come to you to talk to you about it, Right? Instead of doing that weird gossipy thing where they're just like, they make it a prayer request about the other person, they're describing the event to you, and they're like, but you know what? Yeah, they did this, they said this, but you know what I've been noticing? Man, there's just like, it's bringing out this side in me, and I'm struggling with it, like the anger in me or the, the, the bitterness in me. And all of a sudden, the narrative isn't about what this person over here did. The narrative is me and my weaknesses. That's maturity. That's sonship. That's daughtership. You're now subjecting yourself to discipline. You're recognizing everything that you encounter is an opportunity for you to be exposed to a particular weakness in you. In you. Not other people. So, like that person at work, you continue to struggle with if that's your situation or the continued ongoing issue that you've got with your spouse, instead of you know, talking about how awful the other person is, which may or may not be true, I don't know the answer to that, but you're also totally open to a, a weak area in your own character, in your patience, in your forgiveness, in your courage, and what you might need to say. You're whatever. I don't know. You know. You know. If you listen and you open yourself up, the point is this when in conflict, when in a struggle, 
sure, vent if you need to. I'm not like, it's okay. Find a safe space to do that. But do not, please, do not neglect the opportunity to be curious as to what is being exposed in you. There's always an opportunity there. What do you notice that's coming out in you? What anger, what sadness, what pride? And then process this stuff. Process it with the Lord. Process it with a friend. Talk about these things. It's deeply encouraging. And it's infectious to other people. Lastly, this. There is a looking back. Right? So we're looking up, we're looking in, we're looking back. Or we're, another way of putting it, we're learning, right? We're trying to study and learn Jesus. We're opening ourselves up to Jesus, letting him expose weaknesses in us. Lastly, there's a looking back, remembering our story. Where have we been? How did we get here? Verse 15 says, See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no, quote, root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Man, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now that's uh, somewhat of seemingly a disjointed passage. Um, This is all one stream of thought for the author, and it's probably a bit cloudy to you. It's okay. Uh, It's understandable because we don't have all the little stories, all the stories from the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, memorized like he does. And so he's able to just cherry pick all these different stories and put them together. That's Genesis through Deuteronomy. Um, So the, the root of bitterness is this reference from Deuteronomy 29, the people of God, the second generation from the people that were rescued out of Egypt. He's referencing them and the fact that they're looking around at the other nations and the other countries around them and they're, being je- they're jealous and envious of their gods. And they're about to reject their covenant with God. You know, and they're getting bitter about it. They're like, man, our God isn't going to come through for us. They've forgotten their story. And so they're, you know, they were told not to look around at the other nations and other cultures and other people and be envious and grow bitter and forget their privileged status. If you go back and read Deuteronomy 29, that's what it's about. Now Esau, we reference it in our liturgy, Esau was this, this firstborn son of Isaac and therefore the heir and the one to receive the inheritance of his father. That's how this, uh, this culture was set up back then. But because of exhaustion, <laughs> the guy is exhausted, so he sells his birthright for a bowl of lentil soup. And you're like, that is so weird. I know, it's weird, okay? But here's the point. Um, the author of Hebrews recognizes and is pointing out uh, that Esau and the people in Deuteronomy that he's referencing here, uh, they're paradigms. They're, they're just paradigms for you, for someone that forgets grace. You've got grace slippage in your life. That's what he's doing. That's why he begins it by saying, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. He's talking about someone that might forget the privileged status that you have. You're letting the circumstances or the struggle or the strife or the exhaustion that you feel today, currently, in this, scene, this, this, this season that you're in, you're letting that cloud out who you actually are. You're a son or a daughter that has received immeasurable amounts of grace. That's what he's getting at. And so he's saying the same thing as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6, 1, to not receive the grace of God in vain. 
When he says don't fail to obtain the grace of God, he doesn't mean don't, don't fail to earn or achieve grace. That would be a contradiction of terms. He's saying don't let the grace that you've received leave you unchanged. Some people talk about grace, but they don't seem to be changed by it. Grace, the point of grace in your life is for it to shape you and change you, soften you, warm you, become less hard by everybody else's failures, let's say. And so, in the sign you're forgetting, your privileged status, your sonship, your grace is your continual, this is him talking, a, a good sign, the tell card that you've got grace, like amnesia, is you've got friction continually in your relationships. That's the sign. Do you continually have friction in your relationships? If you do, you're probably someone who is forgetting grace, which is horribly, horribly uh, prevalent, and there's a long pattern of it, of people that have been Christians for a very long time in the church. We just forget who we once were. We forget how we got here. And over time, you know, there's this self-righteousness that begins to come up and out of us and bubble out of the surface. So that's what he's getting at. This is why he brings up striving for peace with everyone. And later he'll talk about gratitude in this chapter. Or he'll talk about loving people. And he'll talk about showing hospitality to people. That's the whole rest of the ending of Hebrews. These are natural progressions to the son or the daughter of the king of the universe who truly gets their status and the grace that they've received. How'd you get in here? By your own bootstraps? You got into the kingdom of God by your own efforts and your own merits. Walk me through it. Anytime I sense friction in a relationship, when I'm at my best, I'm learning to think over my own story. Wait a minute. How did I get the parents I got? How did I get the family I got? How did I get the opportunities? How did I, how did I get some health? How did I end up in that church, in that particular sermon? How did I get that book? How did I get that Bible? How did I get, I keep just, I just go over it. And then I think in spite of, and I can make a big long list of stuff. And then I think, oh yeah, I'm all, it's all grace. It's all grace. It's all a gift. And so why am I, why am I lording over this, this weird anger and this weird bitterness and this weird control over these other people? Why am I doing that? I have forgotten who I am. I'm forgot, I've forgotten that it is, it is utterly shocking that I'm here in the first place. And then deserve one ounce of it. And so today, you know, we have to think and we have to remember our story. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our relationships that we're in. Look, to be clear, um, uh, relational friction is not always your fault. And sometimes it happens to us, not because of us. But when we find ourselves in that place, do we work for peace or do we let bitterness take root? Bitterness just means we're letting the wrong that other people do 
right? The unfairness that we feel, and life is unfair at times. We're letting the exhaustion that we feel be the prevailing narrative of our life. And that's one of the saddest things I witness as a pastor, that people let their suffering or their sin be the prevailing narrative of their life and not grace. Let grace become the prevailing narrative of your story. Yes, the suffering or the sin has its place. It has its chapter in your story. But it is not the overarching theme. Your overarching theme is that you're a son or you're a daughter of Jesus. And so today as we come to our time of communion, think over your story. That's my invitation. Think, where have you been? There's joy in it. There's heartache in it. There's confusion in it. There's regret in it. There's redemption, hopefully, in it. I don't know uh, what's stirring in you. I don't know what in any of the text or anything that I've said is something that strikes you or warms you or opens you up. I don't know. You do. You certainly do. If you care at all or you're listening at all, I know this much. If you're here today, God loves you. Absolutely. You wouldn't be in here if you didn't. I don't care if you're like, well, technically I got drug in here for child dedication. No. You could have said no. You could have said no. And you didn't. And you're here. And so wherever you're at in your own spiritual journey, and we're all at a different place, one thing is abundantly clear. God is loving you, and he is seeking to discipline you. The question is, will you open yourself up to it? And so whatever you're going through, if you're still here, you're still standing, you're still clinging to Jesus, then grace is and will continue to be the prevailing narrative of your life. Don't forget it. Grace. You will continue to change because of it. You will be different. And it's my job to look at you and tell you that. You will be different if you do not forget grace. You will change. You will be softer, warmer, stronger than you are today. If you cling to grace, study Jesus. Don't forget your grace. Open yourself up to weakness. Do these things and you'll be different. The way we take communion, this bread represents Christ's body broken for you. This is the symbol that Jesus gave us. This cup of wine represents the blood of the new covenant. You know, the promise that Jesus makes to wipe away your sin, to give you, a, to make you a new creation. His work, not ours. And all we're doing when we take communion is we're proclaiming his death and his resurrection, right, until he returns and makes all things new again. And so you're invited to this station or this station to take part by taking a piece of the bread off the loaf, giving thanks, dipping it in the wine or the juice. They're both up here. You don't need to be a member of this church. You just need to be someone that's confessing Jesus as Lord in your life, that there's, that there's something genuine about that in you. Take the time that you need and pray. We're so thankful that you're here. Father, we love you and we thank you. It is such an immense amount of privilege to come together as a bunch of people with different ideas, different opinions, different beliefs, and study your word together and try to figure it out. And God, we trust that you're in this place and we trust that you're moving and we trust that you want such beautiful, good things for us if we'll just surrender to it. And so that's my ask. We need the courage to do it. So as we leave this morning, Father, give us a peace and give us a gratitude for all the work that you've done through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we always pray. Amen.